Well, it may be the middle of summer, but we are going to be taking you on a jarringly cold journey into the heart of Alaska, the Alaskan wilderness, and to an extraordinary story of survival against almost unbelievable odds. A story which actually dates back um, to uh, the Second World War and to a plane crash in the wilds of Alaska and the story of one man, Leon Crane, who somehow managed to survive 81 days out in the wilderness. In fact, the title of the book is 81 Days Below Zero, the incredible survival story of a World War II pilot in Alaska's frozen wilderness. We learn a lot as we read this book, and uh, I am very impressed indeed by the good work done by Brian Murphy, a journalist for the Washington Post. And uh, he has uh, worked tirelessly to try to bring uh, the story of Leon Crane vividly to life, although he faced a number of, of great challenges in, uh, in telling this story uh, about a man whom he never had the opportunity to meet. Uh, Leon Crane died well before Brian Murphy began his own quest to uh, construct this story to the best of his ability. I think he's done so superbly. The book, which also includes maps and photographs, is published by Da Capo Press. And Brian Murphy, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thanks for having me on, Greg. I'm really honored, and I love this book. Uh, so let's, let's find out, first of all, how you even found out about the story of Leon Crane. We should maybe mention at the outset that you're not uncovering a story utterly unknown, that this story, uh, because it was so remarkable, attracted some attention back in the day. But obviously for most of us, this is a story we have never, ever heard of. How did you come across it? Well, like, I came across it rather indirectly, and I guess often these stories um, like this have a kind of um, odd entry point. And mine was back in 2007, I was covering Iraq, and I was looking at um, press releases from the Pentagon. And as you can imagine, there's uh, hundreds a day, and so mostly I would concentrate on the ones dealing with Iraq or the deployment there. Uh, One caught my eye, um, and it was about the burial of uh, the remains of a pilot from a crash in 1943 in Alaska. So I'm reading it, um, and uh, at the very end of the press release, they mentioned that this pilot uh, was one of four crew members who died in a crash, and in almost an offhand reference, they mentioned that one of the crew uh, members managed to walk out of the wilderness after nearly three months. So I said, wow, this is interesting. I'd like to read this book and uh, discover there wasn't one done. So um, that launched me on this project. Hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction, Leon Crane died before you undertook this project. Exactly when, he, when, when did he die? Well, he died in 2002. Uh, his children, he had six children, uh, including one who became a pilot, uh, they um, were very helpful. They're, they um, gave me access to the family archives, um, some uh, many unpublished details. They were able to fill in um, some of the blanks that um, otherwise um, would have not been accessible to me if I didn't have the family cooperation. So uh, 
I never got to meet him, but um, you know, I, I, I felt that that it um, it wasn't an insurmountable obstacle. In other words, hmm. I think this is. Um well, you you say in the preface, uh, you you really spell out your challenge in trying to tell this kind of a story, in which so much of it is the solitary story of Leon Crane. Many details only known to him. You write at one point among the challenges seeking to convey Crane's emotions and inner dialogue as you tell the story of this long ordeal. Uh, sketch for us how you went about doing that? I mean, what resources were available to you to help you sort of connect certain dots and fill in the blanks about uh, an experience which happened so long ago to someone no longer with us? Yeah, well, as I said, one of the things that was probably the most helpful in that regard is um, after um, he was um, uh, made it back to base, there was an interview with um, a pair of journalists who were kind of the celebrity journalists of the day. I mean, their uh, story was was very brief, but they effectively wrote a transcript. It was almost a diary type um, type interview with Crane, and his family remarkably still had uh, the original. Uh, typed transcript that had survived all these decades. So this was a good um, window into how he was thinking because he this was in his words and he was, um, the emotions and memories were very fresh. So this was, um, this was, you know, I was able to get relatively close to, to his mindset uh, through this and then follow-up interviews with people who know the area, um, uh, hunters, trappers, others who um, experience this kind of, of weather um, was able to, I think, give as accurate a portrait as you can for, for someone that you, you can't um, interview face-to-face. You also mentioned in the preface that uh, you had never before set foot in Alaska before you began this project. Tell us about your first encounter with, uh, uh, with this particular state, which is actually uh, an unknown region for, for most of us, of course. Yeah, fascinating. And, and it was extra sort of head-spinning for me because I traveled, uh, I was living in Dubai at the time. So I went from the uh, incredible heat of Dubai to the incredible cold of Alaska in the span of of uh, basically a day. So um, when I arrived, I wanted to make my trips to Alaska uh, in the winter to experience the cold, the darkness, just the general ambiance of of what it's like. Uh, When I arrived in Fairbanks for the first time, it was minus 45, which is um, the way I describe it is almost the same way I, I describe the heat in Dubai. It it feels like you're wearing it. It it's on you. You you feel it pressing on you. You your your nose hurts. Um, I'm sure some of your uh, readers, I mean, excuse me, listeners in um, in Wisconsin have experienced cold uh, close to this, but it was um, it was something I had never experienced. And when uh, I was flying up there, 
the guy who was sitting next to me on the plane uh, is a uh, sled dog enthusiast, a musher. And he was showing me how his eyebrows um, were almost gone in the winter because they'd freeze and break off and then grow back in the spring. So it was a, it was kind of a um, really vivid introduction to um, life in, in wintertime Alaska. Hmm. We're speaking with Brian Murphy about his book, 81 Days Below Zero. It tells the extraordinary survival story of an Army aviator by the name of Leon Crane, whose plane went down in December of 1943. Uh, Leon Crane was a newcomer to Alaska as well, a native of of Philadelphia, if I remember uh, correctly. And uh, one of the things you do in your book is sort of sketch for us the important role that Alaska played in keeping America safe uh, through the Second World War, and also about uh, what an inhospitable, dangerous place it was for anyone who was an aviator. I wonder if you could say a word about a, a little tangent you take that I think is incredibly interesting, where you talk about the extraordinary role played for many, many years uh, by so-called bush pilots. Yeah, this is, um, it's it's really impossible to overstate the importance of of bush pilots in the growth of Alaska, even even today, they are the the lifeline for so many people in remote communities. And um, uh, they said they bring in mail, medicine. Uh, they're the taxi service. They're the um, uh, spare parts delivery people. It's um, it's such an important role in a in a huge state like this. Yet, as you said, the dangers are um, incredible. There was just, as I think people may have seen, there was a, a crash just last week in Alaska um, of a plane that I think killed nine people. Um, the weather conditions are um, very, very changeable. Um, and especially back in the 30s and 40s, um, the um, level of instrumentation in the planes um, even the knowledge of the terrain in Alaska was still um, not fully known. So uh, these pilots were um, really brave, really resourceful, but you know also facing incredible dangers. And as you fly around Alaska, uh, one, it, it's kind of um, very sobering, uh, not only for the passengers, but probably for the pilots as well. Some of the landmarks um, beyond the rivers and mountains um, often are wrecks of planes that that sit there and there um, uh, dot the landscape, really, um, from the uh, Barrow Sea all the way down uh, to the Pacific. Hmm. You write at one point, uh, the early decades of Alaskan aviation certainly were not for the timid, uh, to, to say the very least. Uh, say a word about uh, the role that Alaska played for America and other allies, for that matter, in the Second World War. We don't often think of Alaska as any sort of, for instance, important battleground, and of course it really wasn't in that sense. But Alaska was important to our sense of security. Why? Well, this was a um, fascinating uh, backdoor uh, into um, the... Uh, the whole theater, the Pacific theater and the European theater um, in World War II. Uh, at the base 
that Leon Crane was at. Uh, at the time, it was called Lad Field, and this was the um, the handoff point uh, in a program called the Len Lease Program, which not only included Alaska, but Alaska was a, a critical part of this. And what the U.S. was doing was supplying um, planes and other supplies to the Soviets, who were allies of the U.S. at the time, of course. Uh, the Soviet pilots would be in Alaska. They would uh, paint over the stars and stripes with the Soviet Red Star, uh, get in the planes, often with very little instruction. I, you know, they were aviators too, but you know, the planes were different and the design was different. But they would effectively jump in the plane and uh, fly to Siberia, and these planes would then, within days, often be on the uh, the Eastern Front in Europe. So. Um, Thousands of planes transited through Alaska, and uh, for the Soviets, this was really a, a, a critical pipeline for equipment um, and um, and aircraft. Hmm. Explain where Leon Crane uh, was stationed at the time of his uh, uh, crash in December of 1943. Well, he said it, 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 at the time it was called Lad Field. It's, it's still a military installation now. It's on the outskirts of Fairbanks today, but uh, of course at the time Fairbanks was smaller, so it was um, many miles of, of gravel road through pine forest to get out to this airfield. It was um, built, of course, for the, um, for the environment they were in. It, it had underground tunnels connecting the hangars and the barracks and the offices, so uh, in the winter uh, the airmen and the other uh, people on on the base would not have to um, be exposed too much to the uh, to the elements. Yet um, it was um, a place that, more so than than probably any uh, domestic air base during um, during the war, uh, experienced crashes and losses uh, very routinely. They were um, Part of um, the mission at the base, besides the Lend-Lease program I described, was uh, testing planes in extreme cold. And uh, that meant that uh, aircraft were going down all the time. These planes were, were built quickly, not designed uh, for, um, for much more than to deliver bombs or to be support aircraft, but um, the cold weather did a number on them, and uh, many, many crashed. Hmm. Tell us about the test which the which the, this particular plane was engaged in uh, at the time that it crashed, something called feathering. What was feathering, and, and why was it so, por- so important, and how risky, how dangerous was it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyone who's a, who's a pilot uh, among your audience would, would know this procedure because it's still done in any prop plane. What it is is they shut down one of the engines. There were four engines on on this B-24 that that um, Crane and and his crewmates were on, and the idea was to shut down one engine, and then you manipulate the prop to get um, the best airflow. And I, I mentioned in the book, it's very similar to when you're in a car and you stick your hand out the window. If your palm is flat to the wind, you 
you feel the resistance if you tilt your hand you you feel the the aerodynamics of the of the wind going over your your um your palm and, and hand so this was the same principle they were doing and the idea is that if if an engine uh fails you feather the prop and that creates less drag and um it makes the plane easier to fly and also um reduces the chance of stalling and kind of ironically what they think caused the crash of this plane was just this they were in a tight spiral trying to do this prop feathering uh it appears the plane perhaps with other complications but one of the main reasons for the crash seemed to be the plane stalled went into a spin and they were unable to to pull out of it We haven't actually said very much about uh, Leon Crane ahead of this deployment and crash and so on. And before we talk about the crash and then this incredible ordeal which he manages to survive, just say a word about who Leon Crane was. Well, he's, you know, this is um, a very interesting part of the book for me. Not only, as you mentioned, he's um, very much a city kid, urban raised from uh, West Philadelphia. But he also um, brought, I thought, a really important element uh, to his survival later. He studied aeronom- uh, aero, uh, aeronautics engineering excuse me, at, um, at MIT. He was um, an engineer at heart in many ways. He um, grew up fascinated by mechanics and aviation and this i think led to a uh, important sort of problem solving outlook and as uh, i mean there were of course moments of of self-doubt moments of of panic when he was alone but i think one of the things that that helped carry through him these 81 days um lost in the wilderness was was this sense of um focusing on a problem, trying to overcome it, and not feeling um, overwhelmed by, uh, by the entire experience. He'd concentrate on one thing and try to fix that. And this kind of focus, I think, was really important. Hmm. The name of his plane was the Iceberg Inez, and it was a B-24. You do spend a little bit of time in the book talking about the B-24, what made it sort of a striking uh, image up in the sky. Uh, what's most important for us to know about the B-24? Well, I think um, probably the most important thing beyond the plane itself is uh, how much this plane, I think, symbolized the incredible mobilization of America's um, industrial capacity during World War II. Um, every factory, of course, was was retooled to um, to make um, planes or equipment or munitions for the war effort. This plane was really remarkable. It was a, it was a huge plane, as they said, four um, four giant uh, 1,200 horsepower engines. Um, but it was rolling off the assembly line in four separate factories um, at the rate of one every hour almost at some points. So it was um, 
you know, this incredible manifestation of um, of harnessing America's um, industrial power at the time and uh, turning it to the war effort. So this plane was it was only built for a little more than four years. There's only one that's really airworthy still. Yet um, even seven decades after the last one rolled off the assembly line, it's still a really iconic plane. Um, for World War II. Hmm. We're speaking with Brian Murphy about his book, 81 Days Below Zero, the incredible survival story of a World War II pilot in Alaska's frozen wilderness. So the uh, the B-24 in which Leon Crane was, uh, I believe, co-pilot, That's uh, right. uh, crashes uh, December 21st, 1943, in the midst of doing what we were describing earlier as uh, this uh, this matter of, of feathering one thing which you uh, mention is that uh, not only was it uh, terrible that this plane went down uh, with at least some of the crew caught inside it, not able to eject uh, to uh, relative safety before the crash, but that evidently uh, there was a failure uh, when it came to some of the radio transmissions that had occurred before the crash. Tell us what those failures were, and and also why we even know that those failures occurred. Yeah, well, this is one of the mysteries that I think will probably never be solved about this particular mission. The um, the protocol was for the radio operator uh, to report their position approximately every half hour. Um, the last. Uh, half-hour mark before the crash, uh, there, were, there was no um, uh, call back to base. So this plane was, uh, for at least an hour, and I think even more, was not, um, was not being tracked, or at least couldn't, the coordinates couldn't be plotted by, um, by the home base. Um, we don't know why this happened, whether it was just an oversight, uh, whether the radio operator um, was planning to, to make a call and then somehow was was called away. But when the plane first went into um, its um, its spin, which, um, and again, this plane, it wasn't a sudden crash. It was falling for probably five or six minutes. They uh, went back and looked uh, to see for the radiator, excuse me, the radio operator, um, and uh, he wasn't at his um, post. He could have been um, tossed away by the G-forces. But in other words, this uh, this gave the searchers really no clue where the plane was, and they never really came close to, to the crash site. They were concentrating on the last reporter position, which was a more than an hour flight time uh, from the crash site. Mm. One of the most harrowing things you describe is uh, the moment when Leon Crane uh, decides to uh, eject. And, of course, that in and of itself, of course, is a terrible and difficult decision that one has to make. I mean, 
under certain circumstances, you know, <laughs> this plane is crashing. I have to eject. And, and then, uh, but there's always uh, those moments just ahead of that when it is an all but inevitable decision that one might make if you're able to do it, uh, whether or not to leave the plane. And of course, uh, Leon Crane uh, does, of course, decide uh, to eject. S- say a, a word about what that entailed. Yeah, this was, um, you know, you, you have to imagine um, being in a plane, this, um, this cold, noisy, um, which, you know, some pilots described it almost like a, a flying tin can. Uh, things were flying around. Um, the, um, the floor was tipping. The G-forces were, were knocking things all over the place. And... Uh, Crane had to walk from the cockpit down a few steps past the radio operator station, and he uh, parachuted out of the uh, open bomb bay. This this plane didn't, you know, it wasn't a fighter jet or anything, didn't have any um, seat ejection uh, capabilities like they would. Um, so he um, fell out of the plane in, in the same way a bomb would. It, he um, strapped on his chute, uh, crawled this very narrow catwalk um, about the size of a, about the width of a, of a sheet of paper, um, and uh, and you know, fell out of really just just fell out of the belly of the plane. He um, at the time uh, looking at. The, uh, the records from the University of Fairbanks um, and the atmospheric conditions, it was probably about minus 70 when, uh, when, he, uh, when he hit the airflow, uh, the plane spinning above him. And you say the wind chill was well below minus 100. In fact, you said that as Crane began falling, Crane's lips instantly froze and cracked like old plastic. Yeah. Uh, one can hardly imagine so... Even just that one facet of what overall, of course, had to be a horrendous ordeal, and particularly as well, not knowing if any of his crewmates uh, had successfully uh, ejected from the plane. Uh, Leon Crane, I think we've made it clear, is the sole survivor. Uh, Do we know very much about who was able to successfully eject from the plane and who crashed with the plane? Well, there were there was one uh, crew member who uh, parachuted in front of of Crane uh, a moment before. Uh, this was an airman from Pennsylvania. Um, looking back at the records, it's very very likely he may have not have survived um, even the fall because. Uh, Crane had on uh, a down flight suit um, that was pretty much the standard issue at the time. Um, this other um, crew member had a plug-in suit, which um, I described it, I think, is the best way. It's kind of just like a, an electric blanket suit. It was plugged into a rheostat in the plane. And when it's working, it's, it's very warm. It's probably better protection uh, during flight than the down uh, but once it's unplugged, it it's effectively like wearing a fleece, maybe even less. So uh, Crane saw another parachute 
uh, go unfurl as he was going down, which certainly was um, uh, his his crewmate um, Richard Pompeo is his name. Um, but because of what he was wearing, if he didn't die uh, during his um, plummet to earth, there would have been little chance for him because uh, his his gear was just not a, not equipped for that that level of cold. Hmm. Leon Crane, as we've said, of course, is successful uh, in ejecting from the plane. He survives that plummet to earth, uh, finds himself, of course, uh, completely alone. And he discovers almost right away one thing, which in that chaos he left on board the plane. It proved to be a... a, uh, a terrible oversight on his part. Yeah, this is, and again, I think part of it shows the um, uh, how adrenaline and the moment um, can um, can just override all your senses. Um, what he forgot was his mittens, and he didn't realize this probably, uh, you know, until he had landed and took his bearings and so forth, and he realized. Um, he was missing his mittens as he pulled his hands up to cup his mouth to try to yell for, for his crewmates. Um, he he took his mittens off to fasten his uh, the buckles on his parachute. In the in the panic and and chaos of, of those last moments, he left them on the plane. And um, uh, this was, as you said, you know, a very costly oversight. Um, he. Uh, developed very severe frostbite and um, uh, was only very fortunate that um, that he had his parachute because he was able to use that as as you know an effective cocoon and uh, otherwise um, again you know there was a number of, of lucky factors that that helped him in his survival but um, having the parachute there was was a very important uh, thing, and especially in the early days when, when he was uh, waiting by a, a frozen river thinking a rescue plane might come. Hmm. You tell us that he also had his Boy Scout knife, and you write, he always carried it. He liked the memories attached, such as a weekend camping trip at Valley Forge with other scouts. Sadly, though, that was the sum total of his outdoor experience. Uh, I mean, this would be a, a, a harrowing ordeal uh, for just about anybody, but uh, particularly for, in a sense, a city slicker who really had uh, little or no experience uh, contending um, with with life in the wilderness, let alone life in the Alaskan wilderness. Uh, surely he received something in the way of at least cursory training uh, in, in, as part of his military deployment, or, or, or really not very much. Well, as, as you described it, cursory is probably the best word. Um, from it was, it was probably tacitly understood. I don't. I doubt that the um, that his um, superiors would have would have really articulated this. But the idea is that if you go down in the winter in Alaska, uh, your chances of survival are are very very slim. So the so the survival training uh, amounted to little more than. Um, encouraging you to stay by the plane, um, some very, very um, 
rudimentary training about um, uh, looking for, um, you know, going to rivers to find driftwood for a fire and so forth. But basically, the the idea was um, that there was no sense in in doing elaborate training because uh, your chances were um, were very slim of survival. I'm not sure how much of his ordeal we should talk about, of course, because one of the most interesting things about this book is to sort of turn the pages faster and faster as the story unfolds and uh, some of what occurs. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on a couple of things, but of course we'll, we'll leave most of the details of the 81-day ordeal uh, to our listeners to discover for themselves. I think one thing that would be really good for us to talk about is what the military's response to such plane crashes typically was and, and what it was in, in this particular instance. Uh, when planes went down in Alaska, and, and it happened uh, fairly often, uh, were there always rescue missions flown? And generally speaking, how were such rescue missions carried out? Well, they did have a search and rescue wing at um, at the base. Um, it was um, it was led by a rather interesting character who I talk about in the book, who was a bush pilot and also uh, uh, was engaged in uh, the the brief uh, combat with Japan in the Aleutian Islands, which is also an interesting chapter of of World War II as well. Uh, in warmer weather, of course, they would um, have a more extensive search, but they would probably, they, the protocol was for uh, a five or six day search, but I think in many people's minds after day three, it was pretty perfunctory. So they would, um, they sent up planes flying over uh, the last known coordinates of uh, Crane's B-24 they said they weren't even close to the crash site. Uh, At one point you said they might as well have been looking in Siberia. Right. I mean, the fact that they were, in a sense, misled by uh, the, the understandable notion of, of, of zeroing in on the last known coordinates. Those were nowhere near to where this plane, in fact, went down. Exactly. And, and also um, the, uh, the winter conditions in Alaska brings a lot of fog into valleys, um, there's so many obstacles to try to find a plane. Um, one of the things that uh, is also noteworthy is at the time there uh, really wasn't uh, radio beacons fitted on these planes. They were coming off the the um, assembly line very quickly. The, the, this kind of um, uh, search technology was really in its infancy in World War II. So... Um, yeah, they were just uh, going on uh, visual reconnaissance and uh, trying to peer through fog, through snow, through haze, through um, all the things that um, the elements can throw at you. So even if they were close to the crash site, it's possible they they wouldn't have seen it anyway. Right. I, I have to read uh, this passage because I think it is so valuable in helping us understand just how difficult the task is, uh, under, especially under such circumstances as were on hand in, in this case. Uh, so many variables, 
would have to fall into place just to have a prayer of being spotted. There's the overall visibility, which is rarely good in winter. Then a host of other factors kick in. The angle of the sunlight, whether the plane was banking away or pulling up, whether a tree blocked the line of sight, whether the spotters were tired, hungry, bored, daydreaming, or just figuring the whole thing was a lost cause. Think of trying to spot a button tossed at random on a football field. This is what search teams were sometimes told by their commanders, trying to emphasize the need to stay sharp uh, during a search. Then multiply it many times over with fields in every compass direction and no clue as to which one holds the prize. Crane was the button. I mean, I just can't get over uh, the the utter hopelessness uh, of a situation like this. And of course, ultimately, Leon Crane never was spotted by any of these search planes. Uh, chances are they never came close to spotting him. But I think you really help us uh, appreciate uh, just how difficult that task would be and how much of it uh, depended upon the uh, attentiveness and uh, skill of those engaged in the search. Exactly. There was, there was a diary that I came across from a fellow airman, and uh, at the end, he was involved in some of the search missions, and one of his last passages was um, saying, well, maybe someday in the future a, um, a hunter or a hiker would come across uh, – this crash somewhere. And this was, you know, to me, this really emphasized how, uh, how vast Alaska is, but also how small the hopes were in finding the plane. And, and he was thinking that um, this story will only, um, or at least the search will only be um, completed in some distant time in the future by pure luck. Hmm. You tell us at one point that where Leon Crane crashed was at least 75 miles away from the nearest road. Uh, what else should we know about just how remote the crash site was in terms of remote from anything that we would call civilization? Well, I guess the, the, the way to kind of picture how this would be um, the real wilderness. I mean, wilderness in the sense of, of very little uh, evidence of, of humans at all, is that um, the place he eventually reached uh, and was able to fly back to, to Ladd Field was a mining camp, and this was the closest habitation to where he was, was a small mining camp with probably a few dozen people um, and a dirt airstrip, or in the winter, I guess, packed snow airstrip. And uh, this place doesn't even exist anymore. It was a temporary mining camp, and now it's um, it's uh, a kind of jumble of, of um, tumble-down log cabins and an overgrown airfield. So even this place that was the closest to him uh, was even a te- was just a temporary settlement. And, of course, he is facing 
not only terrible cold, but also the specter of, of, of terrible hunger. One of the things you describe, uh, evidently, he described this in recounting the experience, was how hunger uh, ended up appearing in, in sort of bursts and stabs. Uh, it wasn't just a steadily growing sense of hunger, and then, and then suddenly he would just be overwhelmed with just the most awful sense of hunger. And the fact that Leon Crane was a lean, fit, natural athlete in some respects, was a hindrance. Uh, he had almost no excess fat at all, right. which meant that, uh, that in a sense, the, the, the matter of hunger was going to be even a more serious situation. Yeah, it, it was, you know, getting, and, and this was helpful in the follow-up interviews, talking with people who were um, professors and researchers and, and, um, and sort of army experts about... Um, the effect of hunger, not only on your physiology, but on your psychology, too. And uh, there's a, I thought, a very evocative uh, uh, recollection by Crane where he was um, dreaming of food, which, you know, we all do sometimes, but it, he described it, it, it was so vivid. He said he could feel the warmth of, of the meat. He could, he could taste the butter on the mashed potatoes. And uh, this is a very common um, uh, psychological reaction to hunger, where uh, your your body is a, is a, is is craving it so much that 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 these experiences seem almost real. Hmm. One of the things you write about, I think, most beautifully, is the experience which. Uh, Leon Crane had of very quickly coming to realize that uh, he would be thought lost. Um, at one point you write, Crane was shuffling into the past tense. In hearts and minds, Crane was being reassigned to the roles of the dead. He was turning into a living ghost, an invisible pilgrim, Crane found a special cruelness in this in-between world. Again, the, the thought is that, that he is alive, but he begins to realize as days go on that as far as the whole world is concerned, including everyone who loves him, he is believed to be dead. And uh, that, of course, created for him a, a very terrible kind of aloneness that... That uh, that very few people ever experience. Yeah, absolutely. And this, to me, uh, you touch on what I find is one of the most compelling uh, subtext of this whole project was the fact that this guy uh, literally returned from the dead. He was um, he was effectively um, declared dead by the military. His family, uh, despite um, claims to the contrary after the fact. Um, I can only imagine that his his parents and his siblings um, had assumed he was dead. Letters were sent out by the military um, with rays of, I mean, very faint rays of hope in it, but I think the, the message in these letters was, um, you know, the, the search is suspended and uh, it's very unlikely that anyone could survive this kind of um, 
this kind of um, environment or this kind of ordeal. Uh, so, again, in a, in a world that we have now that, that's so connected and so um, immediate, uh, the idea of, of being cut off in, the, in that way and, and knowing people think that uh, you're gone, you're, you're, you know, they're, they're imagining you uh, uh, as a memory and not a living person anymore. I, I think it's a, a kind of remarkable aspect of this book. And um, uh, there's, a, there's a portion of it, again, not to give away too much, but as he's flying back to base uh, with a bush pilot who gave him a, who met him in this, in this small mining camp, the uh, – they said we have Leon Crane aboard the plane, and the first question was, uh, "Is he alive or dead?" They, they, the initial assumption was they picked up, they found a body somewhere. Mm, right, and of course, you remind us very early in the book that this matter of being lost and presumed dead uh, is a special kind of heartbreak for the families who who lose a loved one in this way. You call it at one point an unclosed sorrow. For tens of thousands uh, of, of, of soldiers who have been lost under these circumstances, and you tell us the vast majority of them during the Second World War. One last passage I want to read, which I think is especially beautiful, and this is as Leon Crane is in the midst of this ordeal out in the remote Alaskan wilderness, uh, trudging one step at a time, desperately trying to find some source of food, some source of hope that he can survive. You write at one point, Crane's interests always leaned towards speed. He concentrated on pushing the limits of the relatively new science of jet engines. Now his world had contracted to the pace when the skies were out of reach. His pace below was one step at a time. I'd never stop to think about what it would be like for an aviator of all people to be stranded on the ground, marooned, alone, uh, someone who relished spe- speed, finding themselves in, in this kind of ordeal, trudging one step at a time through the Alaskan wilderness. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a, a man like that surviving such an ordeal mentally and emotionally uh, or physically. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the um, takeaways um, of this project for me is the um, is the mental attitude, the resourcefulness um, that he uh, brought to this um, situation that most likely should have claimed his life. But he uh, he was able to keep his wits about him and uh, and again, one step at a time, but still moving forward. And I think that's an important thing. And learning from certain mistakes he made and uh, making better choices the next time and, of course, ultimately managing to survive. And and how he manages to do so, of course, forms the heart and soul of this remarkable book and remarkable story. The book is, again, 81 Days Below Zero, the incredible survival story of a World War II pilot in Alaska's frozen wilderness published by Dacapo Press. Brian Murphy, you've told this remarkable story so beautifully. My congratulations to you on an excellent book. I am so glad we got to talk about oh, it today on The Morning Show. Oh, thank you, It was my pleasure.